the difference between winning and losing is everything. I think in business, you either make your number or you don't. You know, if I, if I have a, a global president that's missing her number, you know, uh, um, I don't say, well, Mildred, the, the economy is tough. Uh, and how's your family? But the important thing is, are you enjoying this? That's bullshit, man. See, you better make the fucking number. There's, there's no alternative here, right? We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. We're presented by Spartan Combat. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today is a titan of industry, Joe Galli. He's the CEO of TTI, the company behind Milwaukee Tools, among many other power tool brands. He's forged an incredible career through business. He started at Black & Decker, where he spent 19 years, rose through the ranks. Then he was the president of Amazon in 1999. Then the CEO of Rubbermaid, and now he's at TTI. An incredible leader and a great representation of what wrestling can do for folks outside of the mat, particularly in the arena of business. As a wrestler, Joe wrestled at UNC and was a 1980 ACC champion for the Tar Heels. I love this conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. Fan of the week goes to our friend Brad Bushy, one of our biggest fans on Twitter. We greatly appreciate it, Brad. He's a lover of all things wrestling and enjoys this podcast. So thank you very much. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. If you've heard this podcast before, you know we love Athletic Greens. It's a nutritional supplement where one scoop of Athletic Greens into a glass of water takes care of your daily allotment of vitamins, minerals, and superfoods. It tastes delicious, and through this offer, you can get a one-year supply of vitamin D droplets as well as five free travel packs. Go to athleticgreens.com WCML to take advantage of the offer. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for the great Joe Galli. Joe Galli, welcome to the podcast, sir. My pleasure. Great to be here. It's always wonderful to be able to talk to uh, the wrestling arena. Uh, I, I can't imagine a better way to spend this Friday afternoon. I really appreciate that. Your uh, former coach is one of our first guests, and ever since then, I've been I've had your name on the wall. So glad to have you on. So, I yeah, wanted to. Coach Lamb, is, uh, coach Lamb was a great coach. He was tough as hell. Um, I love him like my second father and I would kill for him, but he, yeah, he, coach Lamb was really good for me. Uh, and it, that's, that's going to, that's part of what helped me do what I'm doing today. So anyhow, all right, let's go. So 
the first time you meet Bill Lamb, you're at the Dapper Dan. What happens at that tournament? Well, I was going against the Ohio kid who was 56 and 0, and um, I was predicted by everyone to lose by a, a, a pin or, or major decision. And, and this kid came out and, and chopped me up the first period. I think he was up seven two. He cut me twice. The second period, you know, he's he, he's um, um, on top and it was bad. And then all of a sudden I have this little, you know, I was a cradle guy. I had one move, but I'm really good at it. I had a lot of ways to get in. And so I, I used to do, I used to set it up from the bottom and get the guy's head near his knee. And I cradle him and pinned him in the second period. So Coach Lamb was going to give this kid a scholarship, and apparently I ended up uh, uh, winning the scholarship in that match. Who would have known? In, in, so it was a very exciting time. And what was it like once you actually got to be around Coach Lamb for a full season? Terrifying. <laughs> really? Well, I mean, okay. Yeah, no, he he's, Coach Lamb was a tough, you know, everybody saying Gabe, Dan Gable stuff. Coach Lamb pushed you to your limit, and then that's when he got started making you better. Coach Lamb expected you to win. He didn't want to hear that the other guy was ranked higher. He could he could have cared less. He he built a team with a culture of extra work and and you know the whole idea is to win. And he hated to lose. I hate to lose too. People say all the time, say Joe, you're so competitive. I say thank you, thank you. Of course I'm competitive. What do you want? To <laughs> don't care. <laughs> so yeah, he seriously. Was, yeah, and in my senior year, um, you know, look, my sophomore year. I won some um, big tournaments, but I ended up taking third in ACCs, which is, you know, you lose in the semis. It's a disaster. I lost by one point. So then this, the junior year, sophomore year, I lost by one point in the semis. Junior year, same thing. So I'm a three-time third-place finisher, which is, you know, uh, and you know the difference between winning the tournament and taking third? Everything, man. So um, the senior year, I finally won the damn thing, beat some guys I shouldn't have beat. Um, we won the team. Uh uh, ACC team championship. And, um, uh, you know, coach lamb was a massive part of that for me. And you're fast forwarding through an amazing story of how like the week before the team title was going to come down to your match or something. Right. And then he comes up to you beforehand. Gives you the old rah, rah. It's worse than that. First of all, the kids ranked third in the country. Secondly, you know, he, um, um, he said to me, look, Joe, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but if you don't win, we don't win the tournament. And by the way, you need to pin the guy. Now I'm a pinner, right? So when I win, I usually pin. But he said, "You're gonna. This is ACC finals at Duke at Cameron Arena, where they all call UNC people bad names, right?" Um, I learned new swear words over there. So anyhow, I did pin the bastard in the first period, and you know, it's, it was um, is an exciting um, step for me. And I wow. and I and so yeah, it was it was a good time. Look, we had a great team. I was not the best wrestler on the team. I was a leader. I was a captain. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the books and all that stuff. I had other things going on. But the wrestling mattered a lot to me. And and when some of the better guys had some misfortune, you know, it was really exciting for me to be able to step up and do it. Yeah. Who were some of the guy, guys on your team who were, well, who were some I mistakes? won the tournament. The three guys that won were Dave Cook, the NCAA runner-up, Jan Michaels, three-time All-American, and me. So Carter Mario's the the best wrestler I've ever seen and, and one of my close friends um, who's never won the NCAAs. He's the last guy to beat Schultz. Carter's wow. the last guy to beat Schultz. Uh, he beat him 14-12 um, in, in the NCAAs the year before. And Carter lost in the semis to a kid named Reese from NC State who was a freshman. And this kid beats Carter in the semis and went all the way and won the NCAA title. So, you know, that was that was crazy. And then we had C.D. Mock, of course, was our first national champ. Mm -hmm. uh, Bobby Monahan, third in the country, beat Weaver. Uh, no, he beat, um, uh, I don't know, Gable's guy. So, so this the team was loaded, man. 
And how long had it been since Coach Lamb had gotten there and I turned UNC around? Well, he was there two years before I got there. And, and um, you know, it was he, – he his first team was probably 0-46. Um, <laughs> and let's see. So I, I started in 76. And I came along with Carter Mario. And uh, C.D. Mock came the next year with Cook and Monaghan. Um, and um, in 77 and 78, we lost the ACC. We, we were – I don't know, runner-up second, maybe third in ACC. But my junior year, um, Wade Chalice was coaching Clemson, and we had the tournament at Clemson. My junior year, I didn't win, but the team won. My senior year, the team won. So, so you know, coach took um, what was four, four years to go from last place to ACC champ. And that ACC tournament, everybody says, ah, it was a lot easier back then. That's bullshit. Back, back then, we had, we had um, three national champs the year I won the ACCs. Um, wow. Three of those winners went on to win the national, so it was not an easy uh, wow conference. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh that's legit. I didn't know. I didn't well, know what the Rob Cole was uh, was an amazing wrestler and a close friend. Don't forget um, T.J. Jaworski, three-time NCAA champ. Yeah, you know Dougie Wyland, a famous surgeon. He was runner-up. We've had you know, look, we're better than people might perceive. That's for sure. Well, and they went from, like you said, a program on the edge of oblivion, and they hosted the national tournament. And they, uh, uh, Coach Lambs, you know, you want to know what, what Coach Lambs like? He had the, the courage. You know, Machiavelli always said, fortune favors the bold, right? So Coach Lamb, and I think it was 92, you know, we built the, they built the Dean Dumb down there, right? And he had a killer team, and he convinced everybody um, to host, you know, this is a basketball school, right? He convinced everybody to host a national title. And I think UNC finished fifth that year, maybe fourth. So it was an amazing achievement. And that's when Pat Smith won the fourth. So it was a uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. big, big nationals. Big, big, and well, every, you know, Ryan, let's face it. Every year is a big national. True. Have you ever been to a nationals? It's not big. I think they're all, I think they're all great. What a okay of, uh, of uh, uh, talent, right? Go ahead. Yeah. Everyone though, you just, you're sad because all your friends are gone the next day. You're just like, man, I w- wish I could get back there. Uh, um, it's really, crazy. Yeah. Well, it's cool to read that. So you grew up in PA in the Whippeal, and yep, somehow yep. you get linked up in a Bobby Douglas camp. What was he living out there at the time? No, camp. No. All right. So Bobby, um, Bobby Douglas, um, uh, he wrote books uh, before there was the internet, right? He he wrote these books on technique. My mother bought them all, made me read them, memorize them. So anyhow, Bobby, um, um, before he took over Arizona State, he started a club in Pittsburgh. Now, today, there's 10 million clubs, right? Everybody's got a club. But back then, there weren't many. And he started a club called the Making of a Champion. And it was in the Pittsburgh YMCA, Gold Triangle YMCA, downtown Pittsburgh. Franco Harris used to lift weights, one floor below the wrestling room. Um, and he'd come and watch us wrestle. And um, Bobby, um, back then, it was like a crazy thing. Wait, I went to practice at four. Why would I go practice again at, at six? Right. Um, but um, so there was a, a band. Uh, we had a small band of maniacs that wanted to win. And Bobby was the 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 uh, uh, he ran the camp. He ran this not a camp. It was it's a club a wrestling club. I learned more from him in the first uh, hour than my high school coaches taught me in, in six years. So he was wow. he was a brilliant, brilliant technician. Um, so anyhow, yeah, that's how I hooked up with Bobby. And, um, you know, that that helped me a lot. So yeah, that was uh, that's when I was a, a sophomore in high school. Man, and that's like you said back then, clubs were like you just had to get lucky enough to live next to a good coach, otherwise you were on your own. You were well. Don't forget though, um, 
the WPIL is the toughest conference in the country. I don't care what anybody says. And P Pittsburgh is the center of the universe for youth and, and high school wrestling. Um, and still, it's okay. There's more states that are better now, but we were always really good at this. So in Pittsburgh, you didn't really need, you know, most of the technique in Pittsburgh back then, you didn't, it wasn't the brilliant technician. It was, you, you, you know, I, I went to Valley High School. So four miles away is Catani, where Jason Nolf went. One mile is, is Burl who produces one stud up and then Kiski is, is three miles. I mean, <laughs> my section. Oh, and then I, oh, then I had Franklin regional eight miles, you know, uh, I, uh, you know, um, Spencer Lee, et cetera. So, so to win my section before you qualify for the, the next round, before you even go to Whitfield, you've got like five monsters. So, yeah, you know, you, if you survive that, you got really good. Wow. Now, I wasn't as talented as these other guys in terms of athleticism, but I was, I, um, I, I'm very strategic. I'm smart, and I I, um, I wrestled like a smart chess, like a physical chess player. So, so thank God. And is that I, I read in a I think it was a Wall Street Journal article on you that you would run after every loss. Was that was that well, them? Is that yeah, true well, or? All right, so no, okay, so first of all, I didn't lose that much, so it wasn't that it, it <laughs> wasn't as impressive. But, but I did lose. Um, and you know, Pittsburgh is cold and icy and snowy in the winter, and you get back from. Um, a loss and it's it's 10:45, and I just got dressed and put the rubber suit on and I ran. I, I had a seven mile run, and and when I lost, I always ran my best time because I was so freaking furious about it. Now I don't I don't today. You wouldn't go on a seven mile run. You would probably work on technique or right. Work right. On, but, but back then, you know, we all ran. You know, and I <laughs> I ran more than the other guy usually. So yeah, that's what I would do. In college, I did some of the same stuff. If I lost. You know, for first of all, if you if you lost for Coach Lamb, you didn't want to face him. And, and so, I mean, I, I you know the worst thing about losing was having a look at him, and then and then hearing the little little um, uh, comment after the match, which was devastating. So I tried <laughs> to sneak out and go in the weight room or something, but you know, so there was none of this uh, good effort out there back during Coach Lamb's there. The only good effort is if you win. I mean, that understood right. The difference between winning and losing is everything. Everything. You know, what's the point? Why even bother if you're not trying to win? So, so no, there was none of that. And you know, it, it was good for me. It's helped me in business a lot. You know, I um I think in business, you either make your number or you don't. You know, if I if I have a, a global president that's missing her number, you know, and, um, I don't say, well, Mildred, the the economy is tough. Uh, and how's your family? But the important thing is, are you enjoying this? That's bullshit, man. See, you better make the fucking number. There's, there's no alternative here, right? So, so it's just like that's what Coach Lamb was. You felt like there was no choice about winning or losing. You better figure out how to win. Didn't matter if the other guy was a lot better than you. Didn't matter. It's funny you say that because at my day job, I'm in tech sales, and uh, awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, the like. Wait, September's the end of our fiscal year, so we'll come down to the wire. And like you said, the numbers are are everything. Yeah. And uh, it's you know it's, because you've wrestled, you know that's easier to handle. And you know I, I know you got a lot of lessons, though, not only from Coach Lamb and from yeah. all these you know war stories, but also your yeah. dad ran a salvage yard. And I want to understand what you learned from your pops. Well, I learned everything from him. He made it. So my father's father, my grandfather, um, died at the age of thirty-five in a coal mine crash. So. Um, my dad was born in Harlem. Um, they moved to Pittsburgh. Uh, grandpa, my grandfather bought all these, uh, all this coal mine space, died. So dad had to drop out of eighth grade and um, lie about his age, work in a steel mill, then lied about his age, go to the Navy. Then he came back and Ryan. So, they, you know, they, they had no money. Um, 
So dad um, figured out he took the coal mine uh, land, which was worthless. And, and he said, I'm just going to, I'll put a scrapyard on top. And when he bought a press, you know, like um, Goldfinger, when they squished the car up, the first one to Pittsburgh because he didn't have to excavate. It, it, you know, they just placed it right down in the, in the high end of the mine. And I mean, so he was brilliant about that. Um, he jumped, he scrapped uh, 10 cars a day, five days a week for 50 years. Can you imagine? And this is, and I watched this from my window uh, at the house. So my father taught me, um, I said, okay, this is the best illustration of my father. So I was promoted 21 times in 19 years of Black & Decker. I went from entry-level sales rep the global president. And I was the youngest in, in that position in a Fortune 500 at the time. Um, and so my dad took every business card I had and put it up. He had this Joe Galli ball uh, in the scrapyard to uh, honor my achievements. But then uh, with all my business cards and all these other letters of how great I am and all this stuff, um, he takes a picture from the Raleigh News and Observer from my sophomore year. And there's a kid named Dave Polsonelli, another Italian from Pittsburgh, or another Italian from Pennsylvania. And he, he, this is an NC State kid. And that's the kid that beat me in the semis. And so the picture in the News Observer was like half a page. And it's it, it, Paul Sinelli pile driving me into the mat. It's the most humiliating possible. So dad puts it up. And, you know, I, I finally said, dad, I can give you 10,000 pictures of me winning. Why is this here? And he said, because you need to understand right next to your, uh, all these promotions, there's always somebody better. And this is my father. Man. This is my father. So, yeah, I learned a lot. You know, he, I would I would work out hard. I had a few friends in Pittsburgh and we were, they were, we were all maniacs. So we go lift weights at the YMCA at seven. I'd go down the scrapyard at, at um, 10. And if you ever worked in a scrapyard in the summer, uh, you have to remember the ground is black from all the oil that you pour in. The cars are sitting out in the sun. So if it's if it's 74 degrees, it's 110. And it's humid. Um, and so it's like a sauna, right? And so, Dad, I would come back lifting weights, exhausted, right? Um, and he's and I say, Dad, what, what, uh, you know? So I worked for him for six hours a day. He said, I said, what, what are we doing today? He said, Well, I want you to move the drive shafts from the far end of the scrapyard up, up, up front. And I said, Well, Dad, I just moved them from there to the back three weeks ago. He said, I didn't ask for any input. Just get move the damn drive shafts. So you carry six hundred twelve of these, you know, all day. And, you know, the weightlifting was nothing compared to the scrapyard work. So, yeah, he, he was, um, and my dad, you know, made it to eighth grade, smart as hell, um, uh, brilliant, actually. Read every newspaper, get his hands on, watch every historical documentary. Um, he was a national champ level bocce player, you know, the Italian game. So he, he, he won a lot of money playing that stuff. So he, you know, he was competitive as hell, too. But anyhow, yeah, I was very fortunate to have a great father and Coach Lamb. It, which I consider my second father, you know, you know, how can I not succeed with all this mentorship? Right. And we cannot forget about the guy I've been dying to ask you about Mr. Pudwell. Is it? Oh, uh, well, so horse Pudwell is the chairman founder of uh, DTI. He's a brilliant, uh, innovative uh, entrepreneur, started a company. Um, his son, Stefan is the vice chairman. So I met horse in 1992 in a restaurant called La Vita in Cologne, Germany. There was, we used to have this thing called a Cologne Fair where we display all these tools. You have it in tech. So anyhow, I go in a restaurant around 10 at night um, with my, you know, coterie, my entourage, and I, and I see him over there. And I've heard about this guy because he was taking all this market share. And so, so I went up to him and I said, um, Horst, uh, my name's Joe Gallo. I just thought it was appropriate that I introduced myself. I said, by the way, will you leave me some business? Because you're taking it all. And he just, he said, sit down. So we, we stayed up till four in the morning that first night. 
And, you know, the rest is history, right? He, he and I were always close. He hired me in 06. And we've taken this company from 1 billion in sales to 14 billion. The stock was a buck 56. Now, you know, we're about 95 now. Uh, so, um, yeah, and, and we're just getting started. What we're going to do the next 10 years, we'll, we'll, we will disrupt and shock the industry and we will be, able to be one of the great companies in the world. And I love how excited you are about it still, though. Oh, I haven't even gotten started. Look, Ryan, look, all I've done in 16 years is build a foundation, man. Everybody's congratulating me. I say, why? It's like, I just did the warm-ups. Now let's go wrestle, baby. <laughs> so what we have now is a launching pad for massive, um, um, unassailable leadership competitive advantage positions. We, it's, and it's in every, uh, uh, you know, so we focus, um, uh, you know, I was accused 10 years ago of only focusing on cordless, right? Cord cordless lawnmowers, cordless power tools, cordless scale. Back to, so um, back then, 80% of the market was either gas or corded or pneumatic or hydraulic. Today, well, in three years, it'll be 90% cordless. And guess what? We're number one in the only thing that matters. Um, you, you know, we are Apple. We, we, have, we only do iPhone. Our competitors are still doing pay phones, carrier pigeons, fax machines. I mean, you got to <laughs> so so um, um, yeah. So we what we've done now is put a platform in place, um, and and get ready, man, because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna ha have a lot of fun in the next ten years, no question. Man, I'm so excited to watch. And just like last time, we skipped over all all the good stuff. I got to go back to this one. Yeah, June 1999. You got Pepsi on the phone. You got Amazon on the phone. Tell me about you end up going with Amazon as the president of Amazon. Tell me about that experience. That's that's crazy. Right, well, first of all, I wasn't on the phone. I was in Purchase, New York. I mean, the Pepsi guys hate my guts, but anyhow, I was in Purchase, New York. I just said I can't make little. In the end, I didn't want to make little kids fat. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a I'm a freak about the. the so and and Pepsi was one of the most prestigious jobs in the world. Still is, still is. Um, um, but you know, I was in New York and. And Pepsi was delaying the announcement. You know, they had hired me and they they said, well, we got to wait another while. And, and, and you know, I felt like it would leak and it was going to be uncomfortable. Um, and then they found out Amazon wouldn't stop. So they leaked the story to the journal. Um, and then all of a sudden, Jeff fired, uh, flew to uh, New York and sat down and created. Uh, he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Um, and I didn't do it for the money. I didn't do it for anything. But I just thought, why do I want to go backwards? And why do I want a company that's 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 um, you know uh, uh, not not an innovative company, not on the vanguard? Um, you know, so Amazon. When Jeff and I talked about the future, my God, we got us both we got us both worked into a frenzy. And so everybody congratulated Jeff when he hired me. He said, "Hey, thank God you hired Joe. He's the adult. He'll keep you." Jeff said, "What? Joe's not an adult. Joe's going to pour gasoline on the fire." <laughs> I learned from Jeff and Amazon how to be bold, you know, how to go on the attack. I, I learned, I learned how big to think. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I had, it was a unique PhD in, in winning massively in business. Man, I can't, it's just that. And that's like right before the dot, maybe the dot com bubbles happening. Or not, no, the or bubble, the bubble was, um, look, yeah, the bubble happened. I, I lived through it. But there's no look when you worry about okay if 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 you have a hundred companies that all of a sudden get very valuable something's wrong. But Amazon always had uh, a path to global leadership, so there was never a bubble at Amazon. All mm -hmm. they did, all they do is keep winning, right? There's no bubble. So, but there were all the Mickey Mouse stuff uh, is gone. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a. Uh... I mean, the ones that made it through are still here. Salesforce made it through. You know. Um... Well, not a, Salesforce is spectacular, right? 
but yeah, a lot of uh, you know the you know, eBay made a joke. You know we, we you know we got to love Microsoft, right? Yeah. How about Google. So a lot of them make it true. And I got to imagine you're someone when you're when you're on like you are now, you're waking up freaking early. You're going all day, like just working like a maniac. The year between Newell Rubbermaid and your current role, what was that like for you when you when you were on? Uh, actually, the first week was miserable, and then it was unbelievably good. So I focused on, you know, I I I um focused on my, my family. I focused on getting in shape, like really getting in shape. I focused on, uh, you know, I love, um, so I'm a coin collector. My dad made me collect coins when the scrap record, we found them in the cars. So, uh, you know, now we call, we call a coin collector a numismatist, but I, I focused and made a lot of money in that, uh, uh hobby. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I read every book I could get my hands on and it was the best year of, it was the best preparation. So when I left Black and Decker, uh, DeWalt and I went to Amazon, I had no transition. I went from tools the books and everything else. And then it was the same thing, you know, when I went to New Orleans. So this was a good thing for me. I didn't plan it that way. I didn't plan it that way, but it turned out um, as I look back 16 years ago, it turned out to be great. Wow. Yeah. It's like in the moment, it's probably the worst thing, but then looking back, you know, maybe a big turn. Well, and everybody said, what'd you learn from wrestling? And I tell this story a thousand times. So I learned from wrestling, you enter a tournament and there's 75 kids. There's only one guy that's going to win. And and other than Kale, tell me who what wrestler has never lost a match, right? Right. And Kyle lost. So um, you learn how to deal with defeat. You learn how to deal with the setback. Um, and you know, I was not Kyle, so I, you know, um, uh, and in losing in uh, at Reynolds Arena, Reynolds Coliseum over at NC State in front of those fans, this is not a pleasant thing. Um, uh, so, but but it, in business, when I've had a setbacks, um, um, I actually from wrestling, learn how to deal with it. And, you know, today I look back and say, you know, those who don't have a setback will never be as good. They'll never achieve their full potential because that when you're in the deep valley and you're feeling sorry for yourself, man, that's when you really figure out um, uh, how, how to go even harder and better and, and achieve your goals. Right. So, so yeah. the setbacks have been miserable experiences and incredibly good for me. Yeah, man. Thank you for sharing that. I, I want to, uh, you know, a little bit of me wants to go back to when you first got into business. What was your first role? Were you just sales calling rep. on sales? I was a sales rep calling on hardware stores in um, North Carolina, South Carolina. And it was a four-store chain that just started in Atlanta called the Home Depot. So I, I called on little bitty independent stores and I called on who is now the biggest tool seller in the world. But then we had four stores. Then. Now they have 2,200. So that was my role as sales rep. I was in that job a year. And then, like I said, I was promoted 21 times in 19 years. Um, and I went through all kind of product development jobs, um, and marketing jobs and, and, you know, ended up running the U S then North America, then the world. For some, for some sales folks listening, and we do have a few that first year, what was key? Was it just being out in front of your customers every day? I mean, what were you doing that no one else was? Well, I, okay. So some of this will sound, uh, maybe arrogant, but this, it's a, it, these are good stories. I was the best sales rep at Black and Decker and nobody was even close. Um, you know, I when my I was trained by two experts in Charlotte, North Carolina. We were in a suite, and and you know, and they were they were there to train me on 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 the tools and on the uh, selling technique. And before I started, I had a month between UNC and 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 uh, so I memorized the catalog, six hundred pages. You know, and I memorized everything. I have a good memory. Um, and so when I walked in, and I and my dad knows more about tools than the guys running tool companies. So I walked in the door, and these guys are saying, "Well, Joe, this is a cordless drill." 
I said, well, that's a 9027, but the problem is it only has four cells. He said, well, how do you know that? Well, guys, it's in the catalog. Plus, I, I talked to some. So then after 10 minutes of this, they said, there's not anything we're going to teach you. Why don't you, why don't you take over and teach us about the product line? Which is what I did with my bosses. So then it's <laughs> no. day. So anyhow, the moral of that story, um, if you're in sales, you better know the fucking product line backwards and forwards, man. If you don't, you don't have a chance. You better know more than anybody else you're talking to about what you're selling. Um, and, and well, first step is you better sell something that's really good because China, China sell, uh, uh, trying to overpromise is a bad idea. Yeah. Okay. So at the end of three days, Ryan, at the end of three days, um, my boss and his boss say, okay, Joe, look, you're good at product, but you never have done any sales. Meantime, I've been selling to my dad's scrapyard since I was four, right? You know, you, you buy the car for five bucks, you sell the, you sell the fender for 200. I mean, that, you know, I, I watch my dad do this every day, right? So anyhow. They say, whatever you do, you don't call on any of your customers yet until the formal training next week in Atlanta. Now, this is this was a Friday afternoon, you know, four o'clock. And, and, it, and I said, well, why, guys? I, you know, they said, because you don't know the process. It's 10 steps. You walk in, you do this step, check the box. You know? So I said, um, well, OK. So anyhow, they left for the airport and I went right to the first hardware store I could find. <clears throat> and I went in and I, um, I introduced myself. And anyhow, I wrote a big order. Uh, I didn't know the steps. And then I called, I called the, you know, back then we had pay phones, right? I called a big shot uh, on my pay phone and I said, Hey, look, uh, I, uh, I have to sort of admit something. He said, what happened? I said, well, you know, I, I, I made a sales call. He said, God damn it. You, I told you not to make up. You don't know how did you humiliate yourself in the company? I said, well, actually I wrote $10,000 order. And he said, you what? I said, yeah, I wrote an order. He said, how'd you do that? You don't know how, what? Guys, I just talked to the guy and I sold him, you know, what he needed. So, you know, and from there, I, my sales career took off. Um, you know, selling was, for me, it was a blast. You walk in a hardware store, you're the Black & Decker person. You know, you're, back then we wore suit and tie, even in a miserable little hardware store. But I always liked going in. I felt like a celebrity. You were nervous walking in? Never. I was never. No. You Let me tell you something. You wrestle in NCAAs against Leroy Smith and get your ass kicked in front of 10,000 people. What would ever make me nervous from now on? How could that happen? <laughs> What some clerk in in Goldsboro, North Carolina, is going to call me names or call me, you know that? No, I, I was. I haven't been nervous. Not I've never been nervous like wrestling. You know that's why people say people say, Joe, you go into these board meetings. You know most CEOs have a massive fear of public speaking. That's why they use teleprompters, and they're also they, they have a, a massive fear of conflict, some other things. So, but but you know uh, I go in a board meeting and. You know, I live for this, man. I can't wait. You know, nervous. I see other guys that are, you know, they're sweating. And I, I just, I love it. Because I know more than everybody else in the room. And I, I am incredibly passionate. If I make a mistake, I admit it and fix it, right? So what would I, why would I be nervous? Wow. But most CEOs do get nervous. So uh, we can thank you wrestling for that. Let me ask you about this, though. Watching your sons wrestle. What do you stand on that one? Nervous? Oh, I, oh I'm the worst father in history. I, I, you know, watching Peter, when my kids wrestle, I'm nervous wrecked. In fact, that's the only time I've been nervous. I, I, I'm so nervous in the pigtail before the quarterfinals. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, I used to sit down by the mat and the coaches, you know, and I would um, – it's funny. You know, I would just take over the match. I'd trash talk the ref, yell at the kids. And the coaches finally say, you need to sit in the top of the, of the, of the uh, arena and don't say another word because you're making you're, – you're, it's embarrassing for us. And so I'd go up. And and uh, when, when I got mad or 
Couldn't Alexander, well, how could that happen? That take time. I was still in the rent manager and we kicked the trash can. I was a terrible, I mean, I was a very committed wrestling father, but I was not good in terms of controlling my emotions. Man. Yeah, but anyhow, look, um, you know, I brag about my kids. I'm incredibly fortunate. I've great kids. And uh, yeah, I always wanted to win. I love it. I love it. Well, Mr. Gala, you've uh, been very generous with your time. I got one more question for yeah. you, and then we'll sign off, sir. Um, you know, I've, I've noticed a couple of phrases you say consistently o- over time, different earnings calls. It's yeah. like, you know, the one that I love, though, is focus on what you can control. And this yeah. came out big when you got COVID coming out. You got yeah. Home Depot closing all their stores. What the Tariff. heck's going to happen? Tariffs, yeah. Yeah, so here, Ryan, I'm glad you brought it up. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I, I believe that, um, um, first of all, uh, the macroeconomic issues we're facing today, are a fiasco. I've never seen anything so bad. However, these things don't discriminate. First of all, all my competitors have the same issues. And however, there's nothing I can do about it. I can't tell. Uh, and, you know, Joe Biden stopped, stopped calling me three months ago because I yell at him all the time. So I can't control what the president does, what Vladimir does in Ukraine. What I can't control is what my company does. So, um, and, and I don't want my people to tell me they missed their number because it rained too much in northern Idaho. I don't want to hear these or ocean freight. There's I can give you 100 excuses right now that I've heard CEOs talk about in the last week. So anyhow, we don't make excuses. Excuses are for other people. We, um, I want to build a company that flourishes in good times and bad. I don't care what the economy does. If you, Steve Jobs never cared when he launched iPhone and iPad. He never cared. The economy didn't matter. He changed the world. So um, yeah, we focus on things we can control. And, and you know, by the way, there's a lot of things we can control. Like we control everything with the macro. We control who we hire, what is our strategy, how we work, all that stuff. So yeah, I am. Um, um, do you I, have like a set routine in the morning you do every day? To control? That, do you have like a set routine you do every morning to control um, how you start the day? Well, it's it's hard because I I was traveling 270 days a year for a while. Then a virus hit. When the virus hit, I actually got into a set routine with my wife. We, you know, we, we would get up at six and work out every morning. And then I, I would um, I do Zoom calls and then, you know, I, I take a break and read a book or do something else in the afternoon. So I got a little bit set. But now, you know, well, when I can, um, um, yeah, I, I get up early and work out when I can. And if I don't get work out in the morning, there's nothing wrong with working out at night. So right. you can do it. Right? Um, and, I, you know, it, you, a CEO can't have a set schedule right? because, you know, if something happens at 1030, what am I going to do? Go to the update meeting at 11? Are you kidding me? I cancel everything. We work on with that. So, and, I, you know, I feel like uh, the philosophy about being good in business leadership is a focus on impact versus activity. It doesn't matter how many meetings I go to. It doesn't matter how many conferences. What all that matters is what impact am I having as a leader? And, and the only way to tell impact is results, right? So, yeah, it's too much time on what I call non-value added activity, wasting time. Reports, meetings, trips. So if you can't look back, this is a good way to close our session. If you can't look back every six months and say, here are the one or two achievements that I'm, that, that, that there were breakthrough achievements for me that I'm really proud of. If you can't do that, then you're working on the wrong stuff. You, you know, it doesn't matter how many hours you work. It matters what you get done with those hours. So that's called impact perspective. Awesome. Thank you. That's it. Joe, thanks for your time. It's been a lot of fun. All right, guys. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life with Joe Galli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review on Apple and rate the show on Spotify. 
All past episodes can be found at wrestlingchangemylife.com. We'll see you next time.